read the first five verses of the book of Revelation in chapter 14 for our New Testament reading. So let's give our attention to the reading of the Word of God, beginning in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What injustice have your fathers found in me that they have gone far from me, have followed idols, and have become idolaters? Neither did they say, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and the shadow of death, though a land that no one crossed and where no one dwelt? I brought you into a bountiful country to eat its fruit and its goodness. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, Where is the Lord? And those who handled the law did not know me. The rulers who transgressed against me, the prophets prophesied by... Excuse me. The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. Therefore, I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord, and against your children's children I will bring charges. For pass beyond the coasts of Cyprus and see. Send a keter and consider diligently and see if there is there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. And now from Revelation 14, the first five verses, which will be our text this morning. Apostle John writes and says to us this morning, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These redeemed from among men being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would open our hearts and our minds and our souls to Your truth this morning. Help us to hear and to be more than hearers, but to be doers as well. For we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved people of God, this morning as we continue in the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ, we are once again preparing ourselves for the celebration of the Lord's Supper by the preaching of the Word of God. And uh, this is important to do because, as Calvin once said, the sacraments are mute without the Word. The sacraments do not work on their own. They are not some magical rite. They are always to be accompanied by the preaching of the Word of God so that we might put our hope not in outward rituals, 
but only in the saving power of God's Word to us in Christ through the work of His Holy Spirit. Now, though we have a lot of ground to cover this morning, and actually I cut it back a little bit, uh, I thought it would be good just to have a quick review of the previous ground we've already covered. We're in the middle of this fourth vision of the seven visions of the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. The first vision covered chapters 1-3, through giving us a picture of the church age with pictures of these various churches throughout that age. The second vision covered chapters 4-7, through where we see one sitting in a, on a throne surrounded by all those who are worshiping Him. And here we find the 24 elders who represent the saints of God um, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the whole people of God from beginning to end. And here we also find the Lamb slain and the seals of God's wrath, which have come and are come and will come on the earth. This section, this second vision, ends with the last judgment in chapter 7, with the reward of the righteous and the punishment of the wicked. The third vision begins in chapter 8, with seven trumpets that once again signal and warn of God's coming judgment with these seven trumpets. And we we see an increase, really, in the intensity of that judgment. That as mankind continues to reject the truth as it is in Jesus, God's judgments upon this earth become greater and greater, worse and worse. And this vision, just like the others, ends with the final judgment in chapter 11. Uh, that is coming, um, this final judgment. And we see there in chapter 11 that that is when the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And, and that brings us now to the fourth vision, the one that we're now in, which runs from chapter 12 to chapter 14. And here we've met the gloriously clad woman who brings forth the promised child, but we also meet the dragon and his helpers. And this vision, too, covers the entire dispensation, the current gospel age between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. The dragon tries to destroy the child, but the child is caught up to God and to his throne. And so the dragon persecutes the woman, persecutes the rest of her offspring. That is, and notice how they're described, those who keep the commandments of God and, not as either one, but and have a testimony of Jesus Christ. These two things go together. We should realize that. And then after that, in chapter 13, we met the two beasts. The first from the sea, he's horrible and terrible, represents the persecuting power of the nations and the governments of this world because they long to rid this world of Christ and his church. The second beast is from the land, and it's a lamb with two little horns. But it's a lamb that speaks like a dragon. Uh, This beast may look harmless, but it's even more dangerous than the first because it's a false prophet who speaks for the dragon and speaks for the first beast, leading the world into that false religion of the dragon, suppressing the truth in righteousness and, and causing great deception, so great a deception that all the world, we're told, follows the dragon in his rebellion against our God and severely persecutes those who follow the true Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. And that brings us now to chapter 14, where we come to the end of the fourth vision, and we're once more brought to the final judgment. We're not going to go through all of this today, surprise, surprise, but, we, but Lord willing, we're going to make sh- uh, further progress in this book, which remember, this book is given to us to comfort us, to encourage us, to, to strengthen us, to help us 
as we live and fight and struggle against all the enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ that are real, that are present even today. And though the enemies are real, and though the war is terrible, and it's hard, and it's difficult beyond belief, so much so that you know, we are reminded over and over that this calls for patience and faith on the part of God's saints to make it through. We realize this is not going to be a cakewalk, but, but we are promised that all that we need to make it to the end, all that we need to persevere, all that we need to make it to glory that awaits us, it will all be provided. It will all be provided as we need it along the way. And on the final day, you and I will sing the glorious new song of salvation with the saints of God of all ages. And what a glorious day that will be. We will be literally living out the truth and proclaiming that truth from Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So let's move on to see what the Lord has for us today as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. My theme will be that Christ blesses the redeemed and punishes the unredeemed. That's really kind of the theme for this whole chapter. And I've broken it down partly here. This morning we're just going to cover the first point. The blessedness of the redeemed in verses 1-5. through Having the Father's name. Singing the new song. And following the Lamb slain. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We'll continue on next time with the punishment of the unredeemed. um, And we'll see how that works out next time. I'm going to try to make that through the whole chapter. But let's look at having the Father's name, singing the new song, and following the Lamb. That's our three points for this morning. So... In chapter 14, you'll you'll notice it's actually divided into three parts because it says John looked and he saw three times in this chapter. He did it in verse 1, in verse 6, and then in verse 14. And we should see these uh, are really the beginnings of three separate paragraphs uh, in the text, in the chapter. But I want you to notice how verse 1 begins. Then I, John is speaking here, then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his Father's name written on their foreheads. Now, there's really so much here that we need to see. There's really so many connections with earlier visions that we've already looked at, and there's so many contrasts with the larger context context, and even with the immediate context. Well, first of all here, we see a lamb. And not just any lamb, but we see the lamb. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The lamb without blemish and without spot. And we know this to be true because the Lord is standing. The lamb is standing there on Mount Zion. That is, he's, he's in the presence of his people. He's standing with his church. Mount Zion is that mountain that can never be moved. We read of this in uh, Psalm 125. I used it for the call to worship this morning. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forever. And this true Lamb of God stands in, in contrast to the false Lamb, right? 
Remember the, the fake lamb here that we saw in the previous chapter? The lamb which speaks like a dragon and deceives the whole world? That's the contrast. Because the lamb of chapter 14 is our Lord Jesus Christ in all of His saving and glorious power. The lamb who is the Savior of the world. We also see that Mount Zion is the city of God. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. The place where God dwells with His people. And, and that's what we will also see here in verse 1 is the symbol of all the people of God in the 144,000. And if you remember, we were already introduced to this 144,000, this sign of the sealed ones uh, back in chapter 7. And if you remember, the 144,000 uh, represent not a special group uh, among the people of God, not a group of super saints, but a symbolic number of the elect of all ages. It's 12 by 12 by 10 by 10. In other words, the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles, which represent the church of both the Old and New Testaments, which multiplied together makes 144. And then you have 10, the number of completeness, multiplied by 10, the number of completeness again, which speaks of absolute complete completeness, the totality of God's people throughout the ages. And you might even remember that back in chapter 7, we were told John heard the number of the 144,000, but immediately afterward he saw, that is, he looked and behold, a great multitude which no one can number. The, the number is the symbol of that multitude, the totality of God's people throughout the ages. These are the ones who are really viewed as true Israelites. You might remember, uh, that's what the Apostle Paul argues in Galatians 3, that we are all one in Christ. One with the saints of the Old Testament. The Jews and the Gentiles together. And what was his conclusion? Galatians 3.29 And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What promise? The promise made to Abraham. And that's why uh, Paul also says in Romans 4 that neither we nor Abraham were justified by the law, but only by faith. And that Abraham is the father of us all. And these people here, these 144,000 who represent the people of, of God of all ages, this multitude really that no one can number, who have faith in Jesus Christ, they stand here in direct contrast. Here's another contrast. Two lambs, two different people. They stand in direct contrast with the world that follows the false lamb. Again, we have another contrast. But there's more. <coughs> Excuse me. The followers of the beast and the false prophet of the dragon were told they have a mark on their right hands and on their foreheads. We looked at that last time. But the followers of the Lamb have been sealed with the Father's name written on their foreheads. The mark of the beast, if you remember, it's not a literal mark on their bodies, but rather it speaks symbolically of their thinking, the forehead, what they think, what their minds are geared toward, and of their hands referring to uh, what they do. In other words, they have really given themselves to follow the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. But you see, the seal of God is different. Again, it points back to that 144,000 in chapter 7. Uh, I think it would be a good idea for you just to read chapter 7 and read chapter 14 one after another so that you can see that repetition, the recapitulation that goes on there. These are parallel accounts, and yet more information is given to us in the latter account in chapter 14. That's how it continues on throughout 
the, the book of Revelation. But you might remember in chapter 7, an angel appears who has the seal of the living God and he announces what? That nothing is to be harmed until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And that is the same thing as having the Father's name written on their foreheads, as it says in our first verse here. It speaks of ownership. It speaks of protection. No one can harm these sealed ones because they are sealed in the name of the Father through the work of the Spirit, or through the work of the Son by the power of the Spirit. So, so what we have here is that the number 144,000 points us to the completeness of God's people, and that's in direct contrast to the number of the beast, 666 on the foreheads of the beast followers, which speaks of their incompleteness, their utter failure in achieving the design of the dragon for humanity. What is ours in Christ? What is ours in the Lamb? It is complete, it is full, and it is total in Him. And we should realize that not one is missing here. Because the sealing of the saints brings all of the elect into the kingdom of the Son. And not one shall be lost, we're told. But let me add this about the, about the sealing in the Father's name. This, this is not only in contrast to the end of chapter 13 and those who have the mark of the beast. It's also in contrast in what continues on in chapter 14 and verses 8 through 11 with those who follow the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. Again, it's, there's these contrasts going on here. We need to realize what's going on in the chapter. You see that the name of Christ and God sealed on the foreheads of the saints carries with it a sense of protecting. And this protecting includes the idea of uh, an authenticating and designating ownership that we belong to him. And therefore, uh, and this is important to understand, the seal really is an empowerment to us, to the saints, to persevere through adversity. And this, in turn, as we persevere, authenticates our profession of faith as that it being something that's genuine. It shows that we belong to God, how we live. So there, there is a sense in which this seal is a symbol of our allegiance. But it's also emblematic of God's power. It's a sign of God's power in us, in the believer, which enables us to maintain our allegiance to the Lamb in the very first place. So the seal, in a sense, empowers the 144,000 to perform the role that's been in, intended for them by the true, as the true Israel. Um, that's what it says about our Savior in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 6 and 7. Okay, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, from those who sit in darkness from the prison house. So God is making this promise to His coming Son. But that promise appear, uh, is, is, applies to us as well because we are in Christ. And again, in the same prophet speaks of the coming of Christ in Isaiah 49.6. Indeed, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So the, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God in Christ is a kingdom, what we see here, that encompasses the whole world. It is, is a kingdom of the people of every tribe and tongue and nation. 
That's what God has intended. And that's what He has done as He seals upon us our, uh, His name. <clears throat> so, what does it mean, in that sense, to have the seal of the Father on your forehead? So, it's not a literal seal. It's a spiritual seal. Now, I think it does refer back to the words of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, where he tells, you shall bind them, the commandments that I'm giving you this day, as a sign on your hand, and, and they shall be a frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. But this too was not just to be taken as something that they did literally. It was to be done figuratively or spiritually, if you will. That the law of God was to be the guide for their thinking, the guide for their actions. And so the real point here in our text is that those who are in Christ, those who are followers of the Lamb, those who have the name of the Father sealed on their foreheads, they have a different mindset than those who follow the beast. Completely. And this mindset controls the way that they think and the way that they live. And so once again, we have to go back to Romans 8 where we live. Romans 8, verses 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. For those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. What's going on in your mind? For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So just let me ask you this this morning. How are you thinking? And how are you living today? We're, we're, we're at the beginning of a new year, right? Last year is the kind of year that many people say they'd like to forget. How was your year? I'm not asking you if you had a rough year. I am asking you this, though. Did you grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord? I'm asking you if you made progress in your sanctification. Are you more like Jesus now than you were a year ago? Because you see, if you're not, then you're not living as one who follows the Lamb wherever He goes. You're not living with Him every day on Mount Zion. But that's your calling. That's what it means to be a Christian, right? Literally, a Christ follower. A follower of the Lamb. And so I would encourage you to make this the year that you set your sights on things above. Where Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit commands us in Colossians chapter 3 to do this very thing. And even there, He points us to the reason. Because the Savior is coming. Christ is going to return. Set your mind on things above, not on things of earth. For you died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Therefore, because Christ is going to return, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Those who have the Father's name on their foreheads are those who follow the Lamb. Are you following the Lamb? Does, does your life show that you only have one Master, one Lord, one Savior? 
Someone has mockingly said that you know a person can be so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. That's not true. That cannot be. Not not in reality. But it is possible to be so earthly minded that we're no heavenly good. Now, not only are those who follow the Lamb, not only do they have the Father's name on them, but they also sing a new song. I want you to listen to verses 2 and 3 again. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one can learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. So, the Apostle John now hears in verse 2 what he saw in verse 1. That is, he hears the 144,000 singing the new song. And it's it's a sound like the sound of many waters. Like the voice of thunder. It's a sound like a a mighty waterfall constantly crashing and thundering. But it is majestic and sublime just as much as it is loud. And, and, And within this sound, you can still hear the sound of the harps of heaven. And so at the same time, this sound is probably, you know, the the most lovely, the most sweet, the most tender song that you ever heard. Because as we learn from the Psalms, the new song of the believer is the song of salvation. That's the song we sing. As we read in Psalm 96, verses 1 and 2, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. And here it is, proclaim the good news of His salvation from day to day. That's singing the new song. Again, Psalm 98, verses 1 and 2. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy holy arm have gained Him the victory. The Lord has made known His salvation, His righteousness He has revealed in the sight of the nations. And we should realize that this, this same language uh, is used in two other places. Very similar here. And it reinforces the, the repetition of the visions, the, this interpretation by recapitulation. Uh, Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10, it says, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. That's, that's salvation, right? We also find it in the Song of Moses, uh, literally also called the, the Song of the Lamb in Revelation 15. Verses 3 and 4. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. I actually know a song that we could probably sing to that, so I'm... I'll have to talk to Bev about that, but we'll see what we can do. But those are the two songs. And so really what what we have here is the new song records the experience of the 144,000, those who have been purchased out of the earth by the blood of the Lamb, God's people. These are the ones for whom Christ died. They have now been cleansed by the work of the Holy Spirit. They're, They're separated from their former sinful lives and from those who follow the beast. 
Remember in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 where the Apostle Paul tells us not to be unequally yoked to unbelievers. He says there's no fellowship between righteousness and lawlessness. And so he tells us that the call to salvation in Christ, it requires separation from sin and from the wicked. Let me just read a little bit further in that chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 16 and reading all the way down to the first verse of chapter 7. And what agreement has the temple with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's the covenant promise. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And in verse 1, which really goes with this uh, previous chapter. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And so we need to understand here, our God distinguishes between the people of this world and those who are in Christ. And our lives are to show that this is true as we cast off every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us and as we run with endurance a race set before us as we look unto Jesus who's the author and the finisher of our faith. You'll also notice that the 144,000 are called the first fruits to God and to the Lamb in verse 4. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. So the idea here of firstfruits has a sense of that they were purchased away from men. In other words, there, there was a separation because the firstfruits of the harvest always belong to the Lord. They, they belong to Him. And as such, they are set apart from the general population. Uh, as it says in James 1.18, Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. So the world of humanity, which is ripening for the final judgment, is often likened to a harvest, right? That's what the final judgment will be. And we read of this in, in many places in the Gospels, as in Matthew 9.37, chapter 13, verse 30, Luke 10.2, and John 4.35. I'm just going to read Matthew 9, uh, verses 36 and 37, where we read of the compassion of Jesus for the multitudes. And this is what it says, But when He saw the multitudes, He was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Then He said to His disciples, The harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. And we are called to pray that the Lord would send forth laborers into the harvest field. We also have this symbolism in verse 14 of this same chapter that we're in, and it follows from there, where we see Jesus is actually going to use a sickle, we're told, in the vision to harvest the earth. And we see that the first fruits for the Lord in verses 14 through 16, and then we see the rest is for Satan in verses 17 through 20. Okay? So this symbolism really rests on this Old Testament law with respect to the first fruits. All the first fruits were offered to the Lord, 
And after that, the Israelites were at liberty to use the rest of it for themselves. Uh, you read of that in Exodus 23:19, And so here in our text, we have this same sort of contrast between the first fruits on one hand and people in general on the other. All the redeemed, the full number of the elect, are included in the first fruits. Whatever does not belong to the first fruits is not for the Lord and is not part of the elect. And so again, we should understand that these 144,000 are not first fruits versus other believers. They don't constitute a kind of select group in heaven or a group of super saints. They are the first fruits redeemed or purchased away from men, it says. This is also evident because why? Because the 144,000 have the Father's name written on their foreheads. And as such, they are the opposite of the small and great, the rich and poor, the free and slave, who receive the mark of the beast on their right hand or on their forehead. That we saw back in the last chapter. So all believers, without exception, are sealed with the name of God and of the Lamb. Similarly, all the reprobate, all those who harden themselves in their sin and unbelief, they are marked, they are branded, remember, with the mark of the beast, which speaks of serving and worshiping the beast. But again, all the redeemed, not merely a select number of super saints, sing the new song in glory. And no one else can learn it. The reprobates cannot learn this song. Now back in chapter 7, in verses 1 through 8, we had this description of the church militant on earth. That was the, the vision. And then in chapter 7, verses 9 through 17, we had the picture of the church triumphant in heaven. And, and here in chapter four, 14, we see that that same church triumphant is described with uh, the aspect of its heavenly blessedness, with its holiness as it stands before the throne. Verse 5, our last verse of our text this morning. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the Lamb of God. These 144,000, they, they have not accepted the lie of Satan, the dragon. And consequently, because they are in Christ, we're told they're without blemish or they're without fault. And this speaks of what we are now in Christ positionally and what we will be in glory as well. Our, our Savior is the Lamb without blemish and so are we in Him and so shall we be for all eternity. Excuse me. <clears throat> now, people of God, there are two things here that we should uh, take from our text this morning, especially as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper together. First, as we come to this table that speaks so clearly of the death of Christ for sinners, uh, of Christ taking our place on the cross, taking our sin upon Himself and the punishment that you and I deserve, let's remember that you and I are in Christ. Let's remember what we are in Christ. And we are like those who are like pure like virgins. Because we are those whom He has redeemed, whom He has cleansed, whom He has purchased with His own precious blood. We are the first fruits of the earth to God and to the Lamb. You have been set apart. You have been chosen before the foundation of the world to be in Christ and to be with Christ. And that is not your doing. That is what God has done for you in His grace and His mercy. That's what He's done in you. Where would you and I be without the grace of God? We would be lost for all eternity. We would have the mark of the beast. And we would serve and worship the beast. It's only our God that makes the difference. 
He makes us to be different. And that's what He's done for us in Christ. And that's what we see in in the sacrament. The grace of God that's greater than all of our sin. That's what He's poured out upon us. And second, beloved, we should not miss that this understanding that we are part of the 144,000 in Christ, that we have the Father's name on our foreheads, that we are the first fruits to God and to the Lamb, that we are and we shall be pure and holy before the throne of God. We should not let all of these great truths of the Scriptures, of what it means to be in Christ, to be a Christian, we should not allow these things to cause us not to pursue all that God commands us to be and commands us to do in His Word. What does our text say about the elect? About the 144,000? About those who have the Father's name written on their forehead? It says they are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Is that what you do? Do you follow the Lamb wherever He leads you? The Bible tells us that we are holy in Christ, but we're also called to be holy. We're righteous in Christ, yes. We're also called to be righteous. You see, there's no place for us to to coast into heaven. We can't put it on cruise control. We must go forward. We must always be going forward, taking hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of us. You and I, we must follow the Lamb wherever He goes. We sang that song earlier, All I Once Held Dear, right? And it's based upon Philippians uh, 3, verses 12 through 14. And I, and I want to read the Scripture, those words to you, as I bring this to a close here. Paul says, Not that I've already attained, or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forget what's behind. Press forward to take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of you. The glorious prize of eternal life in Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray.